after several weeks, I felt what I call a tsunami grief, a very, very intense wave of realization that this was really, really it. He was not coming back. He was really finally gone. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise podcast. A quick program note, we're working on a bunch of new episodes for you. So today's show is a rebroadcast from the archives. We explore questions like, why are conversations around death so hard? Author Julie Sager Nirenberg tells us why she believes the last chapter of life is as important as each chapter along the way. I hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation as much as I did. Here's the show. Writer, educator, and artist Julie Sager Nirenberg believes that although death is an inevitable part of life, how we choose to be with the dying and the bereaved is up to us. Julie's father led what she calls an inspiring end of life, writing his own memoir even as his eyesight was diminished and he was dealing with a diagnosis of metastatic cancer. How Julie chose to be with her father during the last days of his life is captured in her book, Daddy, This Is It, Being With My Dying Dad. We're going to talk about that and more in today's show. Julie Sager Nirenberg joins us from Toronto, Canada. Julie, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you for such a warm welcome, Jana. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you here. So uh, you started your life in rural Oklahoma, but you now live in Toronto. Give us a little bit about your background and how you wound up where you are. I did grow up in rural Oklahoma. I always had a very strong desire to explore the world and to do so in, in different ways. I studied Spanish when I was in college at Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. I was a, a biologist. I imagined myself Julie Cousteau, shall we say, <laughs> and, and uh, went through that period of my life where that kind of what I was thinking about. However, I married upon graduation from college, and that next episode led me back to Oklahoma, where I began to work in laboratory research and environmental studies, later in biomedical research in the hmm. laboratory. Mm -hmm. And I found that what I really loved the most in, in all of those positions that I held, I held a few of them, was the teaching aspect. I loved to teach whatever it was that I was learning or doing to others. And so after about eight years of holding those laboratory positions, I decided to pursue a master's in education and specifically focused on education of gifted children. I did that while I also began to work at a private school for educationally advanced children. So I worked there for many years, 18 years, and enjoyed doing that very much. And I wore different hats there. I taught language arts. I taught Spanish. I was one of the administrators, and I taught art. And throughout all of that, I found that I'm drawn to reading what's new in nutritional literature and environmental literature and things that pertain to the science of environment and human living in that. So it stayed with me as a more or less a hobby. When I left Oklahoma in 2006, I took a very grand leap and landed in Toronto, Ontario to join my partner here. And I have worked with him in various roles in his business offering support to his writing and editing needs. And what I found was that 
settling in as an educator here would be quite difficult for me to do within school systems and still be able to travel to Oklahoma a lot. So I decided instead to reinvent myself as a writer and editor and do freelance writing and editing. Hmm. And that has been a very interesting journey. Hmm. So along came 2012 when my father was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And I happened to be with him when we received that diagnosis. And I was with him quite a lot over the following several weeks and months until he passed away in April of that year. And he was in Oklahoma then? He was. And I went there often. I happened to be able to be with him in his last days and hours. And it was a profoundly moving experience for me. When I talked about my father leading us through this time of his life, I cannot give him enough credit for that. He was a social worker. He had done that all his adult life. And he was so vitally connected to who he was, who we were in relationship with him. And he had a very strong desire to make that as satisfyingly complete as could possibly be done in the Hmm. last days of life. And he was not happy to receive a diagnosis of terminal cancer. At the time he was told that this was the case, he felt very full of life and that he had much more living to do. And he was a writer of his personal memoirs and had done that for several years. And though he was losing his eyesight, he still managed to find ways to do that and to participate very actively in a group of writers who helped support each other in getting published and so forth. So, and how um, old was he when he was diagnosed? He was 86 and uh-huh. he died at 87. Then. Oh my. Yeah, he was quite elderly, but very sharp, very on top of what was going on and with it. And he and I had a very special bond, as I'm sure he did with each of his children and grandchildren and stepchildren as well. He was unique in that respect. He could hold each of us very close in our own special ways. Mm -hmm. And he made that known to each one of us before he passed away. And he offered many opportunities for each of us to kind of get square with him if we had any questions or whatever it was that we wanted to share with him. He prompted us to do that. And we each were able to have some dialogue with him around that at the end of his life. That was such a precious lesson to me. So then what I found after after he passed, I kind of felt like I was in a, a bubble a time warp bubble, unlike the experience of people's sudden or traumatic losses or deaths of a family member or a loved one, for me and for us, this was something that we knew was coming. Mm-hmm. So um, it was not an immediate shock. It was not in that category. What I found, though, is that after several weeks, I think about six weeks or so had passed, I felt what I call a tsunami of grief, a very, very intense wave of realization that this was really, really it. He was not coming back Mm -hmm. (laughs) in any form that I could call him up on the phone every day or listen to his laughter or his other silly sounds that he loved to make. He was really finally gone it was hard. It it was very hard to realize that I was angry. I was, and the anger was a mixture of emotions or shall we say thoughts involved in that anger. Some of which were that I had been left behind. 
because those of you who might read my book will know that I included a short episode in there of an experience I had shortly after he passed, where I felt that he had visited me and taken me on a light body journey with him. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was magical. It was like something I would have never dreamt up. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, I felt intensely that I had experienced that. And that was comforting to me at the time that it happened. I felt like, whoa, he's really having fun out there. (laughs) Uh If we can go back for just a minute, it's very interesting to me how caregivers mobilize their emotions to stay strong, don't break down, have the occasional feeling of anger during the time that they're caring for someone or range of emotions. But it sounds to me like the bulk of your sort of emotional letting came after versus during your dad's last few days. Can you talk about that and also about your book has the feeling of time being collapsed with sort of major events happening from page to page. Roughly how much time does the book cover? And um, talk a little bit about the process of his dying, if you can. So I'd like to speak to first the emotional range. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel a full range of emotions Actually, I can't say that. I'm sure I did. Okay, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) dial back to January of 2012. Mm -hmm. This is when I happened to be visiting, and he was in the hospital and received the diagnosis of terminal cancer. And it was presented in a rather backhanded way by one doctor who thought that another doctor had already told us. It was shocking in the worst way for my father, uh, I, I think more for him than for me, because I think I was coming from a place of not necessarily knowing what was coming next, knowing that he had gone through many treatments prior mm-hmm. to this. And that's part of the question maybe that you are asking. He had been diagnosed initially three years previous to that. He had been diagnosed with the bowel cancer that then eventually led to his demise three years previously and had gone through many different types of treatments and surgeries and some of them very novel interventions. And it, they had been uh, marginally successful. It would work and then he would need to have something else done and that would work. And people who live with cancer have varying experiences like that, some of them for many, many, many more years than three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I had been with him on this journey um, even though not constantly present with him, often, maybe serendipitously, I happened to be there in Oklahoma with him when he had the next phase happen. I'm thankful for that because I wanted to be there and support him because also his wife, my stepmother, was going through some of her very own very difficult health issues at the time and could not be as supportive as she would have liked to have been Mm -hmm. to him. So back to um, the timeline, he found out in January, it was suggested that he be on hospice care. So that was arranged and he was released to the skilled nursing center of the retirement home where they lived and received layers of support that hospice could offer in addition to the given care that was supplied there. Mm -hmm. So it was very shocking to him to hear the word hospice right away. Most of us And I've learned to really change my attitude around that word over time because most of us, when we hear hospice, we think, death sentence. Mm -hmm. But actually, hospice can really enrich. And for many people, 
give them a much longer uh, lifespan and, and definitely better quality of life. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that's when that happened. And then over the next few months, he was in the nursing home and there were many different things offered to support him. But because when you accept hospice care, there's no more interventional treatment that's mm -hmm. given. He knew that whatever was coming along would, would be that way. And, and he wanted it that way. He did not want to go back into the hospital again. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting because they brought into my father's room all these things that it, if they were appropriate for him to use at the end of life, they would already be there, be available. So they, they brought a wheelchair. They brought oxygen. He never needed to go on oxygen. Uh, and what, one of the reasons oxygen is given is just to make it easier on that person to breathe and be present mm -hmm. uh, and not be struggling. And I'm not an authority on, on all the medical <laughs> mm -hmm. situations that, that would apply to that. But that was given. They brought lots of other very useful things that could be perhaps needed during his last weeks and days. Mm -hmm. And they also had a doctor that was the hospice doctor that would uh, consult on and even see him once or twice. Mm -hmm. uh, would have seen him more than that had it been thought necessary by the nurse. Mm -hmm. And there was a very attentive nurse who came and saw him at least once a week. In addition to that, he got extra bathing and care of, I don't remember if there were other, you know, if they did massage or, you know, it, another level of care of a personal nature on top of what was supplied by the skilled nursing staff at the nursing home. Mm -hmm. So these were very clear protocols that were in place that are standard. They were. Mm -hmm. A social worker also came. She visited not only with him, but with members of the family. So I met with her, oh, and she met huh. with at least one of my sisters and my brothers, you know, depending on our timing of being there. Mm -hmm. Was that comforting uh, for you? Were all these things comforting, or how did you react to that? I did find them very comforting, particularly the nursing care, because mm -hmm. she was just meticulous about going over all his records and making sure that things were taken care of in an appropriate way. I don't remember too many specifics around that other than just knowing that she was very attentive and that if we ever needed more support than what was being given on their schedule, we could call a number and they would immediately triage and make that available 24 hours a day. In the last couple of weeks of his life, the hospice nurse indicated to my sister, who was living fairly locally, that it appeared to her because of his breathing and blood pressure and just different signs that she was seeing that this might be, in fact, the last few days of his life. Mm -hmm. I rushed to get there, and so did some other members of the family, many others. And there was one day, <laughs> about a week before he passed, and I'm kind of chuckling because it was, it was like a big party, you know, a celebration of his life while he was living. Seventeen people were there oh, wow. that day from my family. And was and your dad alert? He was. And in uh -huh. fact, he sang with us, huh. and he commented on some of the music he didn't like. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. But there was a lot of music he did like, and, and uh, my younger brother is a uh, songwriter and very gifted musician, and he, he was playing um, some songs that he had written 
and while he was playing, my dad went to sleep, and it, you know, it was after a very long day of visiting when he had missed his usual naps, and it was just so, we were all there in the room. It was just so pleasant to see that mm-hmm. and know that that music was with him and soothing him, and so several days before he passed, which was shortly after that day I just mentioned, I came down with a very severe cold and I didn't want to be around him and maybe hasten his passing because he seemed to have rallied somewhat Mm -hmm. at that point. So I kind of, I barely came and went for a couple of days. And then, you know, while I was trying to recover and other, other family members were with him, but on his last day, I just knew that I needed to get there right away. And I, I was able to come in. My sister was was leaving so that she could pick up some ointment that was suggested to put on his his eyes were not really shutting properly at that point. Hmm. So, you know, one of the things that happens is that the breathing becomes more labored or more kind of like apnea in Mm -hmm. a way, in the way that it's not as steady. The blood pressure can drop. I guess his had dropped. And there are other physical signs. For one thing, he's not as awake and aware. He's starting to appear to be sleepy, drifting, barely responsive, although he did make responses to us in those last hours. Mm-hmm. And one thing is that his eyes didn't shut completely, and that's a very normal sign. So my sister stepped out with her daughter. They were the only people with him that day, and they went to get some ointment to moisten his eyes. And while they were gone, I was with him when he passed. So in the last minutes, hours, hour or so before he passed, the blood began to pool in his extremities. And the nurse came in and indicated that that meant it was very near. The time of his passing would be very close. And indeed it was. And it was interesting because my father had earlier in the week, and I I shared this story in my book, he had asked me to remind him of the Hebrew name for God. Mm-hmm. And my daughter had, had been with us earlier in the week and talked to him about that. And when I told him that, I, I kind of talked to him, I guess, I don't know, I felt like I was coaching him a little bit in those last minutes. And I didn't know they would be the last minutes, but I did a little singing and I told him that his mother and father were there to welcome him home and, and that his God was there to welcome him home. And so... I said, Adonai is with you. And that's the name that he had asked me to remind him of. And what is, who is Adonai? Adonai is the word for God. Okay, in Hebrew. Yeah, I'm from a mixed family as far as our religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And my daughters had both been brought up in a Jewish temple. And my, my one daughter, who had been with him earlier in the week, actually taught Hebrew to young children. And so he was talking to her about that. And that's when he asked her for that name. And then he said to me at the time, Julie, will you remind me of this name Adonai later when I need it? (laughs) That's what Mm -hmm. he said to me. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, Adonai is here. Adonai is with you. And my father, who was barely, 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 you know, able to say anything, mouthed those words, Adonai, Adonai, Adonai. That's what he said. And that was it. He didn't take another breath after that, which was kind of shocking to me that it was sort of like a switch that turned off there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I waited. I was holding him. I was kind of waiting to see what happened. And that's how he passed very peacefully. And 
I truly feel that he felt he was lifted and received. <laughs> uh-huh. I thought and it that was, was important to him. You uh-huh. know? I thought it was so interesting how you talked about the exchange that you had with your dad where he said, are you ready to release me? That must have been such a tough conversation. Can you talk about that exchange where your dad was asking you, are you ready to let me go? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just getting getting a little equilibrium here. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, that was probably the critical piece of our conversations during the week. He did a lot of opportunity creating for me to talk to him about anything, but it was that tough question. He wanted to know that I was ready because he was ready, and uh, that would help him get ready. So it was hard for me to do that. And so I, as hard as it was, and I, I didn't do it without a lot of tears or emotions, whether I was visibly crying much, you know, I can't recall. But it was a very emotional question that he brought up. And, and I said um, something to the, to the effect of, yes, I'm ready when you're ready. I'm ready to release you when you're ready. I would never wish upon another that they stay in this life in suffering to satisfy some need that I have. And this is very hard to say because, I mean, there may come times, future times in my life when I'm with someone that I don't want to release. I didn't want to release him, but he was ready to go. And, of course, I would give him that reassurance that I'm, I'm okay with it because I was okay with it. I saw the suffering. There was one particular day when his pain, it was almost, uh, I imagined, like childbirth uh, mm-hmm. that isn't successful, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that, like a person that's laboring and laboring. And it was after that that we realized he was ready to receive m- the morphine after that. Mm-hmm. Morphine for his system uh, hastened it shutting down because he, he was very sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. So... We kind of knew that would happen. His tumor mass was big enough that things weren't working right anymore, and he was in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. So there was no reason for him to continue to suffer, and he didn't want to either. So it was hard to release my father and to give him that reassurance, but it was important to him that I do so. I was glad to do it. I was prepared. Uh huh. I thought it was so touching how you wrote, just, he just wanted me to be there. My mom's 87, and she's still relatively healthy. And her happiest moments are not what she's doing. There's so much value in just being there, just sitting there. Yes, yes. In the title of my book, Jana, I have used the words hyphenated, mm-hmm. being with. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that very consciously, there was one of my teachers, one of my colleagues and mentors, I, I would give her that credit, is Virginia Sino, who is a doctor-level nursing instructor. Mm-hmm. And her specialty is teaching others about end-of-life communication. And I was working with her. I was doing some editing of some of her material in the same time frame that my father was in his last months. So... There's no coincidence there, I don't think. And uh, Mm -hmm. it helped me. It helped me to be with the material that she had and be working with that and beginning to to prepare myself. And her words that she's chosen to use in her work is that being with is a skill, just learning how to be there. 
and that each of us can prepare ourselves to be ready to be with. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked her if I could use those words in my title. She was honored, happy for that. How can and you prepare? Have, so there's nothing like the presence of another, the accepting presence mm-hmm. of another. This is a judgment on my part I'm going to make. If we get into a tug of war about what should be done, what isn't being done, having a fantasy that this should be going differently from what it is, I can only imagine the extra stress and tension versus calm and peace that that would create for the dying individual. Mm-hmm. So as hard as it may be to just be there with someone, I wouldn't trade that experience that I had for anything you can imagine in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I could not stress what value those days and hours had for me. Have. Uh-huh. <laughs> it did take me several weeks to kind of realize that my dad's gone. He's not available in the same way. However, I feel his presence all the time, and I feel his encouragement. And when I was met with this grief, uh, intense, intense grief and some anger and disappointment and, you know, the challenge to myself, when do I accept this on the deepest level? When am I really, really going to get with that that's my reality now mm-hmm. and I'm going to always miss him? I used writing as a tool to help me cope with that. And what I did is I had no intention of writing a book when I started to write. I just, I'm a writer. So my goal was to just kind of use that journaling process as a way to help myself accept. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I just started at the beginning and I told myself the story Mm -hmm. of what happened. And was this after he passed away? Yeah, this was uh, six to eight weeks after he passed is probably when I started that writing. And I spread it out over several months, actually, because I would write a little bit and then get to a point that I wanted to stop. And then maybe a week later, I would come back to it. And a week later, what I would do is I would read it from the beginning, read everything I'd written. And then at the point where I stopped, I'd pick it up again and write a little more. Mm -hmm. And then I'd stop. And then I'd go back and I did that over and over and over again. Actually, that's a tool that I've heard is used quite a lot in helping people accept whatever circumstances might happen in in their lives, including trauma of all kinds. Hmm. That using that technique of revisiting and telling the story over and over again until it isn't as hard anymore to tell it, until it isn't bothersome. It may be emotional. I'm not going to say I can ever read that book (laughs) that I wrote and not become emotional. I I would do. Uh It brings it all back. Yeah. And people have told me that one of the things they liked about it was that it was raw. It was kind of real time, you know, as though I'm in the room with the reader telling them what's what happened. Right. And so that may be hard for some people to read. I've had many people tell me as hard as it was for this to read, they still felt it was of value. And so then what happened after I was encouraged to publish this, I did. And I I thought, what am I going to do with this little book? Why did I publish it? I wanted it to be a tribute to my dad and to the wonderful process that he took us through and that, that I shared in the book. So as a tribute to him, I have reached out to many, many, many people and shared the book to hospice libraries, to 
you know, all kinds of people who work with grief, bereavement, palliative care, end of life. And I've, I've had an amazing, amazing response in the form of people's comments, their gifts of writing they have done. I have new friends, acquaintances, contacts in the thousands. I can literally say I didn't realize it was that many till the other day. And all because people felt gratitude and they felt touched by the fact that I had gone to print with this very personal story. And it's been very gratifying to me. If there's something more that can come out of this event, something more than just my own personal experience and development, then I'm so happy for that. And my father had asked me several times before he passed if I was going to tell our story. He called it our story. And I said yes. So I didn't know that it would be a book, but I'm very happy that it is. Uh (laughs) Just as a logistical question or as a factoid, is your biological mom still living? Because she's not mentioned at all in the book. She is, and there wasn't a particular reason to bring her up. But she is living. She's healthy. She's 90 years old. And, uh, and she's where does living. She, live? she lives independently in Oklahoma in the same little town that my sister lives in, the town that I grew up in. And I call her almost every day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Talk to her almost every day and uh-huh. support her in the ways that I can. But she's in good health. And as a side note, my stepmother just recently passed in January. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I was to be there for her celebration of life. Mm -hmm. You know, our family, our blended family on that side has a great wish to stay connected. So we're, we're hoping that we can do that, can find ways to do that. My, my stepmother was the, the thing that would bring us all back together from time to time. Mm -hmm. Now she's passed on. So it's up to us to create our opportunities. Yeah. The tone of your book suggests that you had a really unusually loving relationship with your father. For people who don't have this kind of a relationship with their parents, how can they learn to say goodbye in a healthy way? That's a great question. And it's not that I have personal knowledge of a way to mm-hmm. do that, but I will mm-hmm. give you some of the knowledge that I <laughs> that I think I've gleaned from others writing and the resources that I've gathered. I think that going through a process and I'm sorry I don't have this right in front of me to give proper credit for it, but there's a process of saying to anyone in your life, and I encourage people, don't wait till somebody's dying because you never know when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a, a good thing to do from time to time, um, telling them that you forgive them. You forgive them for anything and everything and asking them to forgive you. So that's what I would do. I would, if I had a contentious relationship, I would do that. I would take that step and I would also say that I love them. And that love is eternal. And that was one thing my father really found important to share with each of his family members at the end is that he felt deeply that love was eternal and his love was eternal and that all we ever had to do in future is just ask for that, and it's there for us. I strongly believe that also. Now, it's hard when we have circumstances that may have left us feeling neglected or traumatized or taken advantage of, or we've had a long-standing feud. Maybe we haven't talked to our loved one for a gazillion years. There are lots of people in that situation. 
you know, it's great if you can create an opportunity to do the things that I've just talked about and take those steps in a face-to-face way. But if you can't do that, if you can write a letter, and if they're gone already, if you can do that in a meaningful way, I think writing is terrific therapy, personally. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily come easy. So if you can do it over and over again, and I think there's a great value in that. I forgive me. I forgive myself. That I believe personally that that's the hardest thing to do. We can talk about it, but deeply, deeply, do we forgive ourselves for anything and everything? It's hard to do. You know, if we're really able to do that, then we're able to do that for anybody else in our lives. Uh-huh. And whether or not we're with them, whether or not we ever see them again, it's an important step to take. But as far as creating peace in the last few days, I think those are the important things. And also asking and answering any questions, you know, just be there to do that. But if the person, if the dying person is not able to do that, I also would suggest don't have an expectation. You know, if we have expectations, specific ones, we're going to end up being disappointed. If we're open to the possibilities then we're not so disappointed. But, you know, if you have a very specific expectation, then it may not end up being the way you want it to go. And I I encourage people, we have another elderly person in our family. My partner's mother, she's just turned 95. She's just amazing. And she's downsizing. She's finally moving into a senior residence. All the little and big things that she's accumulated in her life are now being sorted through and this thing will end up with this person and this thing with another and that, you know, this is a process that's going on now. It seems to me that if we get too attached to any material objects, that's going to create difficulties within families. I heard a story one time, somebody that I was fairly close to, you know, that just one piece of jewelry that was left, consciously left and directed to be given to one particular family member created such angst in that family (laughs) that many, many, many years passed before that was able to heal. So I look at that and I think, oh my gosh. But so often it seems that a material possession the desire to claim that and own it and clinging to that is representative of something deeper that's going yeah, on. Yeah. It's not yeah. even about and, the thing. And I, I don't know. I think entitlement, it, that word is an important word to think about. And we often, I include myself in this generalization I'm about to make, we often uh, think we're entitled to something, whatever that might be that we think we're entitled to. Well, you know, That's another thing to just release all of that. If the legacy that you want to leave and have associated with your loved one is a good one, is a positive one, is a loving one, then let all the rest of it go and uh, however it ends up is going to be okay. Did you have certain expectations that were met or not met during your dad's final days? I don't know if expectation is a word. So I had Uh the hope. Uh-huh. Of, be, of being supported by my family in, in that process of being with him, mm-hmm. of, of having another circle of support around me of my family. And that was, if, if you want to call that an expectation, it was met. Had it not been, it might have been harder for me, especially when I became ill for those few days, mm-hmm. to feel any kind of peace around not being there. But I did feel peace around that. 
As far as, uh, okay, so there, when my dad heard from the doctor in that strange way, well, I did have an expectation of that being handled better. Mm-hmm. You know? Can you just explain that for our listeners? When my father heard from the hospitalist who was attending at that moment that it was time for him to go on to hospice care, and basically that was the way he learned that his cancer was now terminal, mm-hmm. that it had spread that way. I had an expectation that it would have been handled differently and explained to him in a gentler, more, even if that doctor had first said to him, what do you know now about your condition? What has your oncologist explained to you? Because the oncologist had been visiting, and I think the hospitalist had a legitimate thought that the oncologist would have explained to my father what was definitely known in his chart. He had not. He had not. So for some reason, that particular day or that particular oncologist, I I don't want to draw any conclusions that I can't back up, just wasn't able to share that with my father. Why? I don't know. I think that's your job. (laughs) Right. So so there, there I can say that I had a definite expectation and I was disappointed, but I also feel gratitude because I was there. I could help cushion that blow. I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like for him to hear that on his own and have that guy walk out of the hospital room and him have nobody there to console him. Yeah. I was grateful, and I, I don't think I had an expectation that I'd be there. I wanted to be there for his last days and hours, but I'm, I'm so grateful that it worked out that way. So there were a lot of just ways that things kind of came together for me that they weren't necessarily expectations. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., at least publicly, we seem to be either fascinated by death from a distance or we've become desensitized to it because of gun violence or a sense of hopelessness among youth. It's almost like violence is the only death we know as a culture, and we can really barely talk about that. And yet, I noticed there's this Twitter account called Death Cafe, and there have been over 4,000 meetings held in 40 countries where people talk about death over tea and cake. This Twitter account has over 12,000 followers, so clearly there is a desire for people to talk about end-of-life issues and death, but why is it so hard to talk about these issues? And that's such a great question. And I think there's a lot of different things that factor in there. But first of all, to preface my answer to you, I want to say that I'm basing what I'm going to tell you on the great amount of research that I've done since that first book. Mm -hmm. I have a second book that's coming out shortly. It will be called Journey's End Death, Dying, and the End of Life. And I'm I'm a co author with that or co compiler. There are over 80 people that contributed to the book and much more research that went into the resources presented. Mm -hmm. Why I'm telling you that is because I'm basing what I'm going to tell you next on this great amount of research that I've been involved in for the last several years. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we in our Western world, particularly North America, have such a hard time with death is that it has been really medicalized especially over the last 50 years. And it's been, that means it's been taken out of our normal cultural experience and put into a category of treatment, prolongment of life, Mm -hmm. and all about what we call health issues when actually it's medicalization, something that involves medicine and medical interventions 
that's how most of us, that's the context in which we have an experience or a conversation around death. Mm -hmm. It didn't used to be that way. Death used to be just a normal and natural thing. You know, in my grandfather's day, his grandmother lived in their household, and uh, she fell down the cellar steps at a very advanced age, and within a few days after she, she passed away, she was in their home. They took care of her in the home. The community came and paid their respects in the home. He didn't go into the details of the burial and a book he wrote about his young life. But at any rate, what I'm saying is, I'm just using my own family experience as one example, people in general not only used to have many death experiences throughout their life that they were intimately involved with, but death was also more common because we didn't have the ways of preventing it. Right. Prolonging, well... Prolonging (laughs) life, yeah. Yeah, let me correct myself. There is no way to prevent death. You can prolong life, maybe not in a quality way, depending on the situation, but we're all going to die. And we don't like to think about that in North America. And what we like to think about and celebrate is youth, youth, youth. We're not into celebrating age. And really, if you look around the world, this is not the case in many other cultures. Mm -hmm. In many, especially ancient cultures, the aged were considered the wisest, most important community members. And we've lost touch with that concept of precious elders. We've really lost touch with that. And we're scared of death. You know, it's been associated with horror shows. And you're absolutely right. The way that we have been enculturated, especially in the age of movies and television, is that death is traumatic. It's definitely not something we think of as a normal and natural part of life. Mm -hmm. I think this is a terrible, terrible thing for our culture to be comfortable with. And I am working hard now to be in the conversation with many, many resources made available to people, including movements like the Death Cafe movement. And there are so many of those growing Mm -hmm. up. And there are so many examples of progressive movements around death and dying and burial that are they're just novel ways of uh, being buried or taken care of after you pass. Not just cremation and burial in a casket, but there's a lot of other, lot of other options out there. All uh-huh. kinds of information in, in the category of death, dying, end of life, grief and bereavement are becoming far more available. There are university and college courses now on death and dying. It's becoming a very popular topic wherever those are offered. Sometimes those are the most sought-after courses for people to enroll in, and, mm-hmm. and many of the people, many of the universities that are offering those yeah. report the same result. It's very popular. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think so, unless it affects you personally, you don't really go near it. I've found that after my father died, my father died in 2009, two days before Thanksgiving, suddenly. So I had a completely different experience than you did over the death of a parent, And I found after his death, and of course, I was pushed into it because, you know, my dad died so suddenly. I found I was forced to grapple with this issue in a way that I wasn't prepared for. And yet it allowed me to be present in a way that I'd 
really had not been present in my life. And I've always led a fairly, you know, I'm here now sort of life, but it this was completely different. And my experience with death really enriched my life to the point where I was hyper aware in a way of every moment I had, if that makes sense. Jana, it makes it makes a world of sense to me. Okay. And I, I'm just so happy that you that you shared that because it, it was the same for me. Me being able to experience my dad's death and be uh, integrating it into my life as I have has been a huge transformational event for me. So it's interesting. I had, when we talk about people who aren't comfortable with death, Mm -hmm. um, I actually had one friend, and I want to mention this because it taught me something about people and about myself. So she actually was concerned for me and for my health and said to me that if I stare into the abyss, those were her words, Hmm. too long, it could be detrimental to my present health. And what what occurred for me is a number of things. Firstly, realizing that people could even have that kind of idea. I I need to be aware of that, that this is somebody else's perception, their reality around that concept. Mm-hmm. And that what became very, very clear for me is that's not the case for me. And then this next part is when I stare into the abyss, if you want to call it that, what I experience is infinite love. It's not an abyss in a bad sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a well of love that never stops. And that love speaks to my life. And enriches my life in a way that I can't now imagine. And that's the thing that we all experience, any aha that we have. You know, we integrate that. We can't go back to what we were before. And I have no desire to do that. Right. And I never expected this. I never did this, created this book with the idea that, oh, you know, I'll just be showered with love. And and people who uh, tell me that they've reached a new level of understanding, it has been such a gift to me to have people things to me. One one of my friends to say, you know, it's been 17 years and I never until I read your book had resolved that my parents were really gone. You know, it, just different comments mm. like that. And mm. to me, that's not anything negative. That's love. That's just a wonderful, bright benefit for me. Right. And I had so many people send me their own stories, their own books. And this second book grew out of that. Right, so tell us when that's coming out. Probably be within the next two months. Okay. My co-author, Victoria Brewster, is a social worker, and Mm -hmm. she she works with the very aged, Mm -hmm. and she has just been wonderful. The two of us together kind of immediately realized when we had a conversation that that this was the thing to do next. And I, I do believe that even if somebody is not willing or, you know, has no desire to publicly share what they write, the act of writing and being able to look at what we've written, even if we don't look at it again for 10 years, it can be very therapeutic. And I just encourage, even if you just write it, tear it up, throw it away, you know, whatever it is that can help a person. And of course, you mentioned Death Cafe. There are so many chapters of Death Cafe. And if there isn't one near you, you know, you can start one. You can just put it out there that you want to start one, and it's usually just an opportunity to, for people to come with no particular agenda and just be able to talk about death, dying, end of life, grief, uh, whether it's one that they've experienced, whether it's something that they're concerned about. We're all going to experience it. 
I think, uh, a very affirming thing to to bring death into the concept of death and dying into life. How, how many of us would enjoy reading books that didn't have the last chapter, mm-hmm. you know, worth reading? Uh-huh. You know, the last chapter is an important chapter. Well, speaking of last chapters, I'm going to draw this to a close. So if you have any closing thoughts, please share. Hmm. I had a very wise friend. I still have her in my life, but she was very wise at a very early age in her 20s. And she said to me then, one thing that I do is I think, what if this was my last day on earth? What would be important to me? And so sometimes I think we all have a challenge to make our our life priorities be honored in the order that they really exist in our hearts and minds. And, uh, you know, I find myself doing lots of little stuff and not necessarily doing what is really that big stuff. So that's my parting thought. I honor my friend Carol, who told me, what if this was my last day on earth? All those many years ago, that that's how she liked to look at her life. And I, when she said that to me, it made a lasting impact on me. So that's my thought for the day. Julie Sager Nirenberg, she's the author of Daddy, This Is It, Being With My Dying Dad, a book about how she chose to be with her father, Armin, in the last days of his life. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Julie's book, and we will look forward to her forthcoming book, Journey's End, Death, Dying, and the End of Life. Julie, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your story. It's absolutely fascinating, and hats off to you for having the courage to tackle this openly. I applaud your courage, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Jana. It was a pleasure to be with you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone and your stories matter. Your voices have power. So share this with your friends, share the love, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.